This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Jay Cost, author of the new broadside, What's So Bad About Cronyism? Jay has been a top political analyst for nearly a decade and currently writes for the Weekly Standard. He's also the author of two other books, including most recently, A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption, and before that, Spoiled Rotten, how the politics of patronage corrupted the once noble Democratic Party and now threatens the American Republic. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, Jay, the word cronyism has uh, obviously a negative connotation, and what you talk about early on in your book is delineating between cronyism of the legal and illegal kind in the political context. So spell that out for us. Sure. Well, cronyism is often perfectly legal. Um, and I think that in general, things that, you know, if we think of cronyism or corruption as being a matter for law enforcement, we're really missing like a wide swath of activities that are probably should be considered cronyism, but we'd overlook. You know, cronyism happens anytime um, a politician or even a bureaucrat for that matter um, advances the interest of his friends or his associates or his political, you know, political compatriots at the expense of the public interest. Um, so that covers a very wide array of practices. Um, and as I detail in the book, a lot of it is perfectly legal. There are a lot of ways to sort of build a network of cronies and to pay them off. You know, forget about even the question of being caught. You're not even actually breaking the law at any point along the way. So the founders warned us about cronyism in Federalist 10. Walk us from Federalist 10 to TARP, the Export-Import Bank, and all the rest of the cronyism that we have today. Right. Well, you know, cronyism was not a, a word that James Madison, who was the author of Federalist Papers, it, it's very concerned about interest groups. Uh, again, not necessarily a word that he would use. But he would use the word factions. Uh, he was very concerned about factions manipulating public for their own purposes. And this, this is really kind of the subject of Federalist 10. But if you study Madison closely, you'll see that this is a persistent concern throughout his you know, 40-year political career of sort of, you know, members of Congress or members of the Virginia House of Delegates or members of the, you know, the, uh, the Continental Congress, you know, using their public authority to benefit whatever faction they happen to be closely aligned with. And Madison envisions in Federalist 10 a way to stop this or at least prevent it um, would be to widen the scope of government, uh, widen, uh, widen the scope of the republic, to bring in a multiplicity of factions. He thought that one of the grave defects under the Articles of Confederation was you had 13 relatively small states, and a faction could come to dominate the government in a state by simply being virtue of having a numerical majority. And in Madison's understanding, being a faction isn't necessarily, you, you know, you can be a majority faction. As long as you have an interest that's adverse to the rights of the community or to your, the rights of the minority, Madison would call you a faction. So his solution in Federalist 10 was a large republic. You know, bind the 13 states into a union and push governmental decisions up into the Congress, um, and you can have... Uh, factions balance and check one another because it'll be very difficult for any one interest group to develop into a majority of the entire Congress. 
foil for Madison to a degree during the founding of the country was Alexander Hamilton, who today many Republicans and conservatives hold in high regard for, among other things, creating the modern financial architecture that we see today. How did Hamilton help enable cronyism? Right. Well, first, to, to start, just to be clear, I hold Hamilton in very high regard. I mean, if you look at his output, and, you know, he was the first secretary of the Treasury, and if you look at his output during the early stages of the government, it was Hamilton above any, everybody else who gave the new government purpose, helped stabilize the public finances of the government, which had been a mess almost, you know, since the day, you know, the country declared its independence, um, you know, the public finances of the country had been an absolute disaster, and Hamilton did more than anybody else to sort of right the ship. And in general, sketched out a political economy that was more or less followed until the Great Depression. So Hamilton is a very impressive figure. What Hamilton's agenda was, at least in part, was to secure the public finances of the nation by linking it to the private interests of the commercial financial class, or in other words, the creditors, uh, the potential creditors of the United States. If they're, a, a Hamilton wagered that if their self-interest was aligned with the interests of the country at large, then that would ensure that the United States could borrow a reasonable rate of interest and that its public finances would generally be secure. So that's what he set about to do. He set about to create a system where that happened, and that included a couple key items. The first one was the public assumption of the state debts, which is something that Madison himself had, had endorsed about a decade prior, but there had been a lot of speculation in the public debt, and uh, Hamilton favored redeeming it at face value, which was a huge uh, windfall for the speculators. Uh, and Hamilton also envisioned a public-private bank a national bank. Again, um, something that's really very sensible from an economic standpoint. So a major windfall for the people who had the knowledge and the capital to, you know, invest in it. Uh, and this is what Madison, Madison objected to these things, even though Madison himself had been in favor of a national bank of sorts during the war uh, and had been in favor of the assumption of state debt. Madison was opposed to this and was opposed based on the principle that it is dangerous for the government to create a vested interest of the kind that Hamilton was looking to create. And, and, and he was right. I mean, we can say Hamilton was right and was very forward-looking in suggesting the utility of linking the private interests of the creditors to the United States government, but it's actually a two-way street. It linked the United States government to the private interests of the creditors as well. Um, and there is a problem with public policy. Hamilton was not on the take himself. He was a, a nationalist in the true sense of the word. He was an American. He was a patriot. Um, he never took a dishonest dime from, from politics. But he was looking to help the nation at large through the creditor. Uh, and Madison saw a great danger in that kind of approach to public policy, that when you use some faction or interest mediator for the public interest, that faction basically gives, is given a stake in government itself, and that state is very difficult to get rid of. And that can lend itself to corruption, and that can lend itself to cronyism. You write in the book, and, I, and I'll quote here, as federal power grew, more groups faced the same incentives as businesses. Their well-being depended directly upon the policymakers in Washington, 
So they had to become friends, quote unquote, with politicians, unquote. How was it that a presidential assassination contributed to the end or ending of the patronage system at that time of the 1800s? Because it seemed as if you had sort of a straight line upward in terms of the incestuous relationship between the private sector and the public sector. But then miraculously, the patronage system ends. So explain that. Sure. Well, the patronism sort of develops along an alternative track. Um, you know, the, the Hamiltonian political economy, private public bank combined with protected tariffs. And the government sort of more or less implemented that uh, over the course of the first half of the 19th century. Uh, but then something else happened at the time, which is this, this widespread democratization of American politics where uh, you know, the presidency and all sorts of state offices are just uh, opened up for voters, and this creates these massive parties, and the parties face this enormous problem, which is, you know, if we're, we're, we, want, we need to coordinate our, our efforts to win the White House, but only one person can actually occupy the presidential chair. How do we mobilize all these, you know, workers and campaign workers and volunteers? How do we get them to actually participate? Uh, and the solution was patronage, which was basically the idea that if we win, we'll give you a job, uh, and or a contract, you know, like a printing contract, for instance. This is one reason if you go back and look at 19th century media, the newspapers tended to be part. If their party won, they pick up the printing contract from the from the government, from the state legislature, or even the Congress up until the Civil War. It ended up collapsing in the 1880s uh, because of a crazy person. Uh, um, President Garfield, and he had claimed to be on the pro-patronage side of the Republican Party, and he was in fact just an insane person, and he wasn't affiliated with anybody. But the public outcry was so severe that Congress uh, rushed through um, a lame duck session, rushed through the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which just basically obliterated uh, this entire regime of, of patronage. Uh, and it really was a very revolutionary moment in public administration, and, and there was an enormous overturn uh, in who was actually in the offices, so a lot of times the work had to be left to low-level clerks who were immune to the patronage system, and, and it was just, it was a very, very inefficient way to conduct public administration. The parties needed something to pay off their supporters, but the thing that they chose ended up doing an enormous amount of damage to to public administration, and it was really, in in the in the broad side, I, I make the point this is really the first nationwide systematic political corruption. Shifting forward to today, you write in the book, and I quote: "Congress is the locus of cronyism, with the committee system being a particular problem." Unquote. Explain how that process works and why the committee system is so intrinsic to the cronyism we see today. Sure. Well, what happens after the patronage regime gets gets sort of falls to the wayside, you know, big business kind of jumps in. You know, big business wasn't big in the 1830s, but by the 1880s, the 1890s, business was a national, nationwide firms like, you know, Carnegie Steel and Standard Oil that have, you know, all sorts of interests in all sorts of states and business before the nation at large and heavily depended on protective tariffs and all of these things. And ultimately, they look to Congress, and they look to members of Congress, and they look to, you know, in particular, you know, members of Congress and key 
committee points because the way the Congress is set up, I mean, we like to think of it as 435 people in a lot of respects. Whenever Congress is in the news, it's always something that's happening on the floor of the Congress or is going to happen on the floor or was should have happened on the floor. But in fact, a lot of the business of Congress gets done in committees. Uh, and that's necessary. You know, you need the specialization of committees and you need the ability of members to sort of subdivide and focus on particular policy issues, policy domains. But committees sort of create these access points where interest groups can target human resources and they can target lobbying to sort of maximize their impact on public policy. But then there's also the flip side, which is you know, members of Congress are drawn to committees where they often have a selfish or parochial interest. So, for instance, if you're a congressman from Northeast Ohio and you have a lot of labor union members in your district, you're going to want to go onto the Energy and Commerce Committee because that's where, you know, um, you're going to have the most opportunity to pr- pass pro-labor legislation. If you're from Southern California, Orange County, and you have a lot of aerospace in your district, then you're probably going to want to go you know, the military appropriation subcommittee or the armed services subcommittee for exactly the same reason. So what happens is the committee system is sort of this double-sided problem where it draws the provincial members or drawn to certain committees on the one hand, and then on the other hand, interest groups can target their resources for maximum efficacy. Of course, it's the leadership in Congress that gets to determine what bills pass out of those committees and go to a broader vote. Right. That's certainly true. Um, and the, But the, the challenge, though, is that a lot of times we're talking about, you know, legislation nobody else is even going to really look at. I mean, we're talking about these massive appropriations bills. We're talking about the stuff that doesn't get onto the news, just the normal, humdrum, everyday business of government. Uh, and a lot of times, look, there's not even a legislative record detailing the payouts that were made. And A Republic No More, I quote uh, an extended anecdote from a defense industry lobbyist who says the most, you know, the, the biggest boom that she ever provided for her, her clients was a $50 million increase in a missile that they were pushing. And she pushed it through in a markup on an appropriations bill. So there was no, there's no record of that in the, there's no legislative record of that. There's no v- recorded vote on that. And that's something that would slip by the leadership. It probably would even slip by most everybody outside of the subcommittee on which the markup occurred. So this is really where, you know, you you really get down to it. It happens in this sort of nitty gritty stuff that the people at large are just not paying attention to. And journalists aren't even paying attention to it. This is really just a handful of people who are really watching these things carefully. Um, and it's because it's such a level of specialization and the granularity is so fine that it escapes notice for almost everybody. And the only people, the, the, the trick is, is that the only people who notice this sort of stuff happening are the cronies, are the people with financial interest in making sure that that missile price increase goes through. Every, nobody else even notices. And that that's a that's a huge point that you make, and and you write it pretty explicitly in the book that you know we the people bear the cost of cronyism across basically every good and service that we use. So in your view, how do we make people internalize this fact when, like you say, it's so imperceptible, and fifty million here and a hundred million there look like rounding errors when we're talking about trillions of dollars in debt that already exist. 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, it, it, the, the, the regime of cronyism and corruption and the sort of the rating of public, um, pu- the public treasury for factional purposes, you know, the people who are engaged in this are, you know, they, they keep it under the radar. They do it intentionally for that, for that reason. The last thing anybody wants is the public ire being raised, you know, people's hackles getting raised. Um, and so that presents an enormous challenge um, for people who want the government to be fair and impartial and somebody who's lobbying on behalf of the taxpayer broadly. I mean, that's, the, the, the tax code is a great example of this. I mean, the tax code is probably the most evident example of this, right? Is that there are all sorts of industries and interest groups and lobbyists who are pushing for this carve-out in the tax code, this exemption or this deduction or this, you know, rule change by the IRS, this or that. Who is in Washington, D.C.? lobbying on behalf of the taxpayers at large, lobbying on behalf of a clean code that is fair and impartial and straightforward and simple. Hardly anybody. I mean, there's sure there are, you know, public interest groups on the right, the left, like the Heritage Foundation and Americans for Tax Justice. I mean, but they don't have an army of lobbyists, you know, at their beck and call, which these big firms do. Um, and that really is the problem. I mean, it's just such an informational imbalance where advocates of the public interest are just so totally outgunned uh, and out uh, and outlawed, frankly, uh, that it, it's a very, if you, it, it, I don't think there's any real chance of overcoming cronyism by a straightforward frontal assault, like we're going to repeal this program and then we're going to repeal this tax law. And then we're going to repeal this subsidy. I, I just don't ever see that really working. I, I think there's just too much, uh, too much in the way for that to happen. But your book, at the very least, educates people in a way that's simple and straightforward and accessible. And I think probably in terms of effectuating some change and, and public discourse on this, egregious examples, individual examples are powerful. So in your view, what is the most egregious example of cronyism in recent memory? Um, I would say the most egregious example would be the alliance of interest groups that facilitated the housing bubble that popped in 2008. Um, and, you know, so we're talking Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but that's not all. We're, you know, we're talking about affordable home, um, affordable housing advocates. We're talking about the real estate agents. We're talking about the home builders, the construction lobby, there was just sort of this massive push to continue to inflate this bubble and just ignore the warning signs that were flashing red uh, after a certain point uh, and really had a calamitous effect on the, on the nation's economy. And what is so disheartening to me about that, uh, about that event is that there was no public discussion after the housing bubble burst about whether or not we need to revisit our housing policies, whether or not it's really such a good idea to be subsidizing cheap mortgages. That that coalition of interest groups, in other words, just didn't go away uh, and really didn't lose all that much power, frankly. 
Um, I think, and, and moreover, uh, there was just this sort of very wide swath of interest groups and public intellectuals who disclaimed very loudly and nastily to anybody who suggested co- to the contrary that um, that this was a, a you know anybody who suggested that this was a bad idea was just outcast, who cast into outer darkness and considered a completely you know unrespectable p- opinion. Which to me is just extraordinary. How how could there possibly have it was manifestly a housing bubble? The federal government had manifestly loosened mortgage lending standards. So don't understand how it's completely outside of the realm of legitimate discourse to suggest that oh, just maybe the one had something to do with the other. But that's how interest group power works in this country, and it sets the terms of the debate. I mean, that's the other thing, too. It's, it's, it's not just working its way through Congress, but a lot of these interest groups that get so powerful, and I talk about this in the book as well, is that, you know, they set the terms, they set the boundaries of legitimate political discord. Yeah, government is clearly... Um just cannot handle the idea of a post-mortem, let alone actually implementing real reforms that would fix things. And and to your point, when it comes to the financial system, the fact that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac still exist today and still effectively are the mortgage finance market in America, in addition to the fact that Dodd-Frank was created basically for the benefit of larger financial institutions and for the benefit of the folks who wrote it on Capitol Hill and then went to go consult at other firms, just shows you how intrinsic this is to our system today. Yeah, and it shows you how the political class is immune from learning lessons, right? Is that there was no, there was no, I mean, there were people, maybe there were some people up on the Hill who were like, oh my goodness, you know, what were we thinking we need to change? That's not how these things work. And people in general don't change their minds about things. I mean, that's just the way life is. But when you have people's natural stubbornness and, you know, comfort level with the way things are, when you combine that with the campaign contributions and you combine that with lobbying and you combine that with the prospect of a nice job after you leave office, it just becomes impossible. Uh, to overcome, and that is why in the book I, I don't talk about like oh we need to do we need to do housing reform and then we need to do Medicare Medicare reform and we need to do you know we need to get rid of you know corporate welfare and a tax code I mean we need to do all of those things but they all have a similar symptom which is the way politics works on Capitol Hill and that is where I think reformers really need to start, and this is frankly getting outside of people's comfort zones, because most people who get into, you know, politics, you know, people who pay attention to the problems in, you know, housing finance, right, are interested in that problem because they like finance, or they like, they like housing. They're not thinking about politics as a process. Uh, I come from a background of looking at politics as a process. And I look at, you know, the way the medical service, the influence the medical services industry has, the financial service industry has, the defense industry has, and I see similarities. And the similarities take me back to the way politics operates. And we need to stop think, thinking so much about, oh, what can we do about financial services reform, which is not to say we don't need to do it, but it is to say that if you really want to get reforms done, what you need to focus on is the way the political process actually functions. That's where, and by the way, that is an area that has gone unreformed for generations. Um, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of any substantial reform of, of American political process 
since the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which was 1883. So we're talking, you know, almost 120 years at this point. One of the problems is that by definition and by nature of the system, the rules are always written in favor of the politicians. And when they're not, you know, regulation is sort of the mother of innovation, even if it's regulating the politicians themselves. So how can you weed this graft out of the system? What would what would be in an ideal world? What would your message be to the American taxpayer who is aghast at what they're seeing? Well, you know, in the book, I come up with an idea that is not a typical one for conservatives, and I sort of fully expect some pushback about it, but I think it is a very conservative position, and I think it's public financing of congressional elections. Um, I think there should be, I think it should be voter-directed. I think that there should be tax, there should be a, you know, refundable tax credit um, with with a federal matching fund, you know, somewhere upwards of six to one. Um, I didn't come to that conclusion lightly, something that I, you know, as a conservative, I've always been suspicious of liberal discussion of campaign finance reform. But ultimately, the problem gets down to this, that the way politics is financed in America, right, this enormous cost, like we were talking about earlier, how patronage was the way politics was financed, and then they got rid of patronage. And so politicians still, they they still had a financing problem. They had to finance it somehow. And they went to go to businesses, basically. Business started financing politics. And so in general, I mean, business isn't alone anymore. But what we have now is, by and large, politics, at least on the congressional level, is financed in a conflict of interest system, which is to say the people with business before the government are the people who are responsible for funding the politicians who sit in government. And that is a conflict of interest. And as long as that conflict of interest persists, Reform will always be difficult, temporary, and probably unsuccessful in the long run. Because that financing system is the real problem. The real problem is whatever you and I might think about what the public good demands, the fact of the matter is that a member of Congress from some subcommittee on the financial services industry needs to get reelected. And to do that, he needs to raise $2 million. You can't raise $2 million from small donations, so you go to the interest groups that have business before your committee. We need to create an alternative financing regime to that. And that's why I, in the book, I call for, for public financing of campaigns, and, which I think would be the, the cornerstone reform. And then there are other things you can do, too. You, you know, stricter rules on um, lobbying by former members of Congress would be a very good thing. Um, you know, you could do something like that. You could further, you know, restrict, you could further restrict lobbying and things like that. But as long as that, this is, and this has been the challenge historically, right, is that you can start saying no to things. And, you know, ever since this sort of, financing via conflict of interest popped up in the 1890s, there have been lots of laws. The Tillman Act of 1907 said businesses can't donate to campaigns. Well, they found a loophole. You know, Taft-Hartley of 1947 said labor unions can't donate to campaigns. They found a loophole. There's always loopholes because there's a need for money. And when there's a need for money by politicians, the money will find a way to get there. So, you know, you can start limiting, saying, no, you can't do this and you can't do that, you can't do this. But it's similar to price controls. You know, if you limit the price of a 16-ounce jar of peanut butter, you know, they'll just make a 17-ounce jar of peanut butter and they'll make it whatever size, whatever price they want to make it. What I'm suggesting is what we need is something positive, a positive alternative to financing of politics through conflict of interest. 
Um, and just to put it into perspective here, we're talking, I mean, when you compare the cost of a public financing regime for elections, we're talking about a couple billion dollars a year max. This is a, this is a rounding error in our budget, in, in our, in our budget. You know, I mean, we spend like $50 billion a year in corporate welfare alone through the tax cut. The farm bill itself is hundreds of billions of dollars over a 10-year period. I mean, Medicare overpayments are $40 billion, and that doesn't even get into the fact that the American Medical Association sets the rates that doctors then don't follow. So, you know, it's a very small investment for uh, strengthening the independence of the legislature. And it's something I really think conservatives should consider, even though it's typically something you only hear from Ralph Nader-style leftists. One other argument that you make where I assume there will be some pushback is on the idea that you you argue that Congress needs a larger staff and that it should pay its staff members more. Explain that. Yes. Well, this is a typical symptom of our government is that, the, you know, we, we think of, uh, you know, John Boehner got into you know, control. The Republicans got control of Congress in 2011. The first thing they did was going across the board 5% cut in congressional budgets, which was a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. And it, and it, confl- and it ignores the existential or essential difference between the executive branch and the legislative branch. All government in our system is not created equally. Now, we have a tripartite system with three independent branches. And the problem with the runaway growth of government is largely in the bureaucracy, which is housed in the executive branch. It is not in the legislature. The, legis- the legislative staff, if you consider how, much, how many things the Congress has to decide every day and all of the things that it must weigh in on, the, the staff of Congress is only about 17,000 people, which is insane. That makes absolutely no sense. By, by way of comparison, the Agriculture Department has a staff of 100,000. And the, the staff in Congress, 17,000 member staff, when you take away the people who are doing constituent services back in the districts or people like the spokespeople, you know, it's even smaller the number of policy experts that Congress has to rely on. They just don't have the resources internally to make informed decisions about the legislation upon which they must vote. So what do they do? They still have to make the decision. So they go to interest groups and they go to lobbyists who are more than happy to provide the information to the member of Congress about the economic impact of such and such a proposal in their district. And as long as members of Congress cannot develop that information independently, then that creates a need that lobbyists themselves are filling. And if we are interested in cutting down the access points between interest groups and lobbyists and members of Congress, once again, I mean, you can say you can't do this and you you can say you can't do that. You can do those things. The problem is, is that those things are happening for a reason. There's a need for the services that lobbyists are providing, just like there's a need for the campaign cash that interest groups provide. And as long as you don't find an alternative way to satisfy those needs that members of Congress have, you're just going to get a different version of the same problem. You're just going to get that 17-ounce jar of peanut butter. Uh, And so that's why I suggest substantially increasing the staff of Congress in the book um, and also increasing the pay of staffers. Because, again, you know, if you're a staffer on the Senate Finance Committee and you're making like $100,000 a year, well, you go up to Wall Street, you could be making five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times that. 
uh, with the policy expertise that you possess, uh, you know, we, we should pay these, these, these staffers uh, a salary that is commensurate with their expertise. And when we don't do that, which we do not, they're always keeping an eye open for interest groups to make sure that their career prospects are taken care of down the road, especially in light of the fact that, you know, for the average person like, like myself, I live in Western Pennsylvania and it's, you know, you can live very comfortably in Western Pennsylvania on a hundred thousand dollars a year. But you know, if you're a lawyer, you're a Yale trained, Harvard trained lawyer, and you're working on the Senate Finance Committee, and you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debts, and you're also living in one of the most expensive, expensive places to live in the entire United States. Their congressional salary is pretty weak tea. And if we want to keep these people, and if we want them to actually be an independent voice for the public interest, then we should pay them a salary that's connected with their skill sets. That contrarian note, the name of the book is What's So Bad About Cronyism, and we've been speaking with its author, Jay Cost. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.